It is a delight to be here this morning. I bring you greetings from Princeton, New Jersey, from Princeton Theological Seminary, and I thank you for your kind invitation to share the gospel with you all this morning. The sermon this morning is a lament. It is a lament for unfinished business and deferred dreams. America is full of ghost towns, ghost towns that are haunted by the spirit of the recession. Developers got caught in the runaway housing boom, and they overbuilt and they oversold lots and houses and condos, leaving neighborhoods barren with uninhabited model homes. Now, the ghost towns are in places like Nevada and Florida and Arizona and California. Some of these ghost towns were in remote areas where the once-promised municipal services never managed to reach the new housing developments. Others of these ghost towns, though, were in major cities, cities where you have a profound contrast between the numbers of the homeless population and those who have found themselves in foreclosed homes, abandoned homes, and now some of these uninhabited new dwellings. The economic recession brought home the bitter irony of the gaps between the haves and the have-nots. It's such a contradiction to me to look at this picture Millions of Americans having no place to call home, and yet thousands upon thousands of empty and abandoned homes. There's one example in California where the developer had planned for 60 brand new houses, McMansions we would call them, but they were only able to finance 10 of them but they weren't able to find any buyers, even for the 10 that they had built. And so rather than continuing to pay fines to the city, they took a bulldozer and they bulldozed over 10 brand new $350,000 homes. California is the state with the largest number of homeless people. I live in New Jersey. In 2009, I read a story that has stayed with me for a long time about this housing boom and then the housing recession. It's a family in New Jersey who had planned to retire to Florida, and they were retiring early. They took their entire life savings and they put a deposit down on a luxury condominium. The condominium was in a unit that was going to be fantastic. They were promised fitness facilities, pools, game rooms, everything that you could think of in a luxury development. Marble floors and a view overlooking the lake. But the economic crisis continued. And so even though there were initially buyers for all of the homes in this development, Many people found themselves unable to get mortgages, and then eventually the developers themselves found that funding was very scarce. 
But this New Jersey family, because New Jerseyans are a stubborn lot, this New Jersey family moved to Florida anyway. And when I read this newspaper account in 2009, what struck me was the fact that this one family decided to take up residence in a development that was supposed to house 200 families, but they were the only ones there. Just sort of picture that, a development that's large enough for 200 families, but they were the only ones living there. They interviewed the parents, the father and the mother, about what does it feel like to live in a place where there should be 200 families and you all are the only ones there? And so they laughed. They said, well, you know, there's no wait for the elevator. Um, but it's quite lonely here. And it isn't just because they're not the people, the families that were supposed to be here, but the developers never finished our condo. They never finished the unit. There were no marble floors. The fitness facility was left unfinished. Some of the fixtures weren't present. It was especially the father who said, you know, it's okay. I don't mind living here quietly by ourselves. But I'm not sure if an unfinished house will ever be a home. I was struck with that. And that stayed with me for a number of years. Can an unfinished house ever truly feel like home? As I think about the question of racial justice, I am struck by how we, as Americans, are living in an unfinished house littered with broken promises and deferred dreams. We have built a structure, but it is far from complete. We have built a house, and yet it remains unfinished. The work of emancipation is an unfinished work. The work of reconstruction is an unfinished work. The work of desegregation is an unfinished work. The work of justice itself is unfinished. We, the body of Christ, we have built edifices, we've built buildings and churches and family life centers and sanctuaries, but sometimes we have failed to build beloved community. We have unfinished business. Because the words of singer-songwriter Luther Vandross says, a chair is still a chair, even when there's no one sitting there. But a chair is not a house, and a house is not a home. So we have built this structure, we have built this house that we inhabit, and yet it is not a home. It is not home for many. A home is a place that answers your heart's cry. A home is a place of belonging. A home is a place that loves you in your brokenness into wholeness. In this unfinished house, 
that is this great American project of democracy, there are some deferred dreams. In his poetry collection, Montage of a Dream Deferred, African-American poet during the Harlem Renaissance, Langston Hughes, famously asks, what happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun or fester like a sore and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat or crust over sugary sweet? Or maybe it sags like a heavy load or does it just explode? Langston Hughes in the 1920s was asking a question that I'm asking in 2015. He was pointing to Harlem, Harlem, New York. 1920, this was the promised land. Great waves of African-American migrants from the South dreaming of a better life. The idea was that Harlem was a land that was paved with um, honey and, and, and milk, and it was streets paved with gold. Harlem was the home of this new music, this bebop, this jazz. Harlem was the home of ragtime. Harlem was supposed to be the antidote to those southern trees that bore strange fruit. And so millions of African Americans left the South after the end of World War I and World War II, and they headed north and they headed west looking for Harlem. But sometimes you travel and you find that your destination isn't what you expected it to be. They did find Harlem, but they did find a place where their dreams continue to be deferred what happens when you travel to a place that is supposed to be the promised land and instead find out that it's an awful lot like the place that you have left. This dream that these immigrants had of freedom and peace and prosperity met the nightmare during the Harlem Renaissance of Jim Crow and racial segregation and high rents and overcrowding and racial violence and lynching, this Harlem was a dream deferred. Dreams of adequate food and clothing and shelter. Dreams of enough nourishment, but you find instead a raisin dried up in the sun. Your dream of healing and restoration and reparation met with a tiny band-aid that could not begin to cover the gaping wound. And so this dream, deferred and denied, just sagged like a heavy load. This is my lament this morning that those dreams remain deferred. Unfinished houses and deferred dreams. Places that have been home for some, but prisons for others. Dreams that have been the fulfillment of promise for some, and yet nightmares for others. We, as Christians, are given permission to lament to mourn, to sit with 
the promises that have not yet been met. We are given permission to ask of God the tough questions, the questions of how long, O God, the questions of how long will we live in a nation where some don't even have access to clean water, the question of how long will we live in a nation where a disproportionate number of our citizens find that they are on a pipeline from the cradle to the prison. We are allowed to ask those tough questions because God has an answer for us. As a professor, I stand and I sit in classrooms and I teach lessons, and at the end, the students will say to me, What can we do? How can we fulfill these dreams? How can we finish this unfinished house? We feel hopeless. We'll lament and we'll mourn, but we feel hopeless. What can I do? And the question that I often return to them is, how big is your God? I serve a God of abundance and not a God of scarcity. God has given us provision so abundantly that all of these questions can be answered when we grapple with the mystery of the awesomeness that is our God. Because even though my story this morning is a lament, I still have hope. I have hope that the power of the sun that dries up the raisins, that dries up the fruit, is nothing compared to the power of the Son of God. I have hope that the festering sores of this nation are really nothing compared to the one who was wounded for our transgressions, who bore our iniquities, and by whose stripes we already are healed. I have hope this morning that the rotten meat that sometimes is festering even in our presence is nothing in comparison to the Christ who, even when faced with Lazarus, dead for three days, and Martha saying, Lord, he stinks, still says to him, rise. Because this is our hope. There is good news about this unfinished house. There is good news about these unfinished places in our home. And this is the good news. There are painters, sculptors, artists who sometimes die before their work is complete. And they leave an unfinished work of art. They leave a sculpture that they didn't quite manage to finish. They leave a massive mural that they never managed to complete. These unfinished works of art are beautiful in their own right. But sometimes, and we have historical examples of this, the artist designates one of his or her apprentices or trainees and says to him or her, I need you to finish my work. 
Because that's the hope of the unfinished work. Not that one generation can finish it by itself, but that each generation, each of us, takes up the mantle of unfinished work. This is what the scripture reminds us of this morning. I am confident of this, that the one who has begun a good work in you will be sure to complete it. That is our mandate, that the work that was begun, that has left unfinished, it is ours to complete. This morning, I urge you to take up your chisel, to take up your paintbrush, to take up your tool, to take up your level and your stud finder, to take up all of the tools that we have been given and finish the work that is before us. Each one of us has a responsibility to complete the unfinished work. Right here in Washington, D.C., I was happy to be at the inaugural unveiling of the MLK Memorial Sculpture. And I remember as I was there and have been there subsequently several times, thinking about this figure of King that rises from the rock in the interviews with the artist who talks about leaving the sculpture, leaving the monument unfinished, so that if you've seen it, it's a complete body all the way down to just below the shin, and then it fades into the rock. And the artist talked about leaving the work deliberately unfinished. I think that is the lesson for us this morning, that each of us have a responsibility to do the work of justice, to do the work of healing, to do the work of repairing the breach, and that if all we have is one small chisel, one small paintbrush, one small tool, that we can use that to finish the work of the one who has called us the one who has called us to do the work to completion so that we may hasten the returning of Christ. This is the good news. Thanks be to God. Amen.